Hello everyone and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. Today's episode could be a very interesting one for anyone invested in Tesla or cryptocurrency as we're going to be discussing driverless cars and crypto skepticism. Joining me is Patrick McGinty, an English professor at Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania. Uh, Let's face it, this is an interesting choice of interviewee for The Wealth Tech Show. I don't speak to many English professors, but Patrick has been chosen for good reason. I'm going to start with the driverless car element of this. So firstly, Patrick is the author of Test Drive, a novel about the driverless car sector, which will be released in May. And secondly, he's written a seminar curriculum for his students around the topic of autonomous vehicles. So at a glance, autonomous vehicles are an unusual focus area for an English professor, and yet they could alter the way that society operates. So enough from me. Patrick, firstly, welcome to the Wealth Tech Show. Great to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for for having me. I'm excited to talk to uh, different people than I would usually talk to, but that's one of the fun things about studying these topics. Oh, absolutely. And and that's why I wanted to introduce you to our listenership, because you've got an interesting perspective and and something that really touches upon an area that is really important for a lot of lots of our our listeners, uh, you know, who are investors, uh, mostly. So a big question to start. What I want to know, Patrick, is, is what sparked your interest in driverless cars? What made you think this is an area that I should kind of direct my focus to? Well, I live in Pittsburgh, and there is a word we have in Pittsburgh called nebby, which is sort of a uh, slang for being nosy, for being uh, kind of, you could say it's lovingly nosy, you could say it's sort of in a pestering way nosy, but a lot of Pittsburghers where I live are very sort of nebby about what's going on in their neighborhoods, and I'm no different, I'm a Pittsburgher, I'm a nebby Pittsburgher, and I remember doing yard work in my backyard in the city and I saw one of the driverless prototypes driving down my alley one day this is probably 2015 2016 I wish I had thought to timestamp it better and it was just one of those moments for me where I thought wow that is an alley full of potholes it is completely wrecked uh and the driverless prototypes are mapping it testing on it it was just one of those moments where I had known they were you saw them around Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's been a big hub for driverless car companies, but something about seeing them in the alley was kind of my first, my little nebby Pittsburgh sensors went off where I was like, oh, this is, this is happening. This is, this is very uh, present. And what I do, because I am a nerdy English professor, I started <laughs> going to the library, trying yeah. to read about it. Some of the first stuff I actually wrote about driverless cars was how there wasn't really enough being written about it. I was sort of trying to find books about it, trying to find more conversation. I could find it on Twitter, but um, really that day in the alley was kind of my first day of sort of saying, oh, this is really happening. Then sort of going and trying to find the discourse community. And and from there, it's just kind of snowballed into teaching a class and writing a book. And I guess it did just sort of start that that day in the alley. I love that. I think curiosity is the start of so many of the conversations that we have on the Wealth Tech Show, uh, and anything involving technology that might involve investment or, or things that we you know we will invest in. And uh, to, to bring things to today, because we're you know so, some years on from that initial uh, experience, what do you think the future is for driverless cars? Now, as I said earlier, a lot of our listeners are investors in Tesla, um, or may have an interest, you know, an ongoing interest in companies like Uber, Bolt, Lyft. Uh, and, and right now, you know, before I spoke to you, Patrick, I went on on Tesla's website, uh, and I read that you know Tesla cars come as standard with advanced hardware capable of providing autopilot features and full self-driving capabilities through software updates designed to improve functionality 
over time. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, boy. I would say that that... Um, and I, I, I don't want to come across as, as a, a skeptic, a Luddite, anything. Um, you know, Tesla is, I would just say, broadly, not well liked by the driverless car community at large. Um, because a lot of these full self-driving promises, I mean, some of these promises when I started studying this in 2015, were going to be present by 2017, by 2018. You can put a prepayment down to make sure your new 2019 Model S has, you know, full self-driving capabilities. It's really kicked the can down the road year to year, which to be clear, many companies have done. Man, when I first started studying this in 2015, 2016, I have somewhere saved on my computer this, this massive spreadsheet of all the timelines promised by different companies. And it was 2017, 2018, 2019. And I would just sort of turn them to red in the mm -hmm. spreadsheet once we passed the date. Uh, and it was clear that driverlessness as sort of a emerging technology was proving to be very, very difficult. And, and to be honest, some of the voices I trust in the sector more than any others have moved the timeline dramatically. There's some, there's some people who, again, know the technical components of, of you know, autonomous vehicles far, far, far better than I. And they're saying, yeah, we might not have level five full self-driving in our lifetime. Um, I heard mm -hmm. somebody on, on a podcast I trust the other day sort of shift the timeline to in 10 to 15 years when um, personal autonomous cars are available to the public, as opposed to, say, some of the more niche applications like logistics or transportation or... or cabs, light rails, different things of that nature. So, so Tesla has been very, very fast. Um, and Tesla, I will say, like, and, and Elon Musk has changed the perception around, say, electric vehicles more than probably anybody in the world. I mean, 10 to 15 years ago, the only people I knew really interested in talking about electric vehicles were, to be quite frank, sort of hippies <laughs> sort of my neighbor yeah yeah <laughs> Mennonite pastor Bob who was just very earthy and, and peaceful and wanting uh, you know us, us to have electric vehicles and so in some ways they've changed the conversation and, and push it forward but um you know just before we started I was just Twitter searching what's 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 going on with Tesla today because it is sort of a daily narrative and there's a defroster recall there's a you know a seatbelt uh, alert thing from last week, a big recall. There's, um, you know, pedestrian warning, something that's not audible. These are, these are, I don't want to say they're simple problems, but these are defroster recalls. These aren't driverless issues. Like these are, these are. Yeah. Issues. So if you're Elon Musk right now, you need to be tweeting about Doge pretty soon just to get the attention away, I assume. Yeah, and so you know, Tesla's just moved very, very fast. They've they've had this incredible rise. I don't I understand it more sort of culturally than I do maybe the market perspective, but um, I would say the future. Getting back to your question about what the future holds, those who have been fast or have suggested timelines in the near future have been wrong every single time. That's that's not a that's not a judgmental or sort of a you know you know, acidic sort of statement, that's just reality. I have the spreadsheet that demonstrates uh, those that have pushed the timeline closer and closer to now have been wrong, that this problem has proven to be very, very, very complicated, interdisciplinary, challenging, whatever word you want to use. And so Tesla, while gaining more and more cultural cachet by the day, also it's sort of becoming clear week by week that there's more and more just base level things wrong that to be honest I, I don't 
it's not that I don't view them as a major player in the driverless space. They're a huge, they're, they're as, they're as notable a company with, you know, when it comes to these issues as anyone else. And yet I, I have very, very real concerns, particularly this year about full self-driving and how many different terms are being thrown around it, how many different recalls there've been. Um, I don't want to fearmonger about it, but I, I would be very concerned about what happens when there's been issues of Tesla drivers, um, you know, dying or misusing um, the technology. Not, not, you know, we're not talking thousands, but there's been well-publicized ones. And I still think we have issues as this beta program goes out on the roads. I worry a lot about what happens the first time there's a, there's a, incident where we start unpacking what's been what's the driver training or education been like uh, at this company where other companies are really really moving more slowly so i would say that tesla's been very fast and that some of those problems literally today as i just scanned twitter um honestly are not even related to driverlessness they're related to the seat belts and defrosters and it, it yeah. almost feels foolish to push the conversation that far ahead for them yeah, that, that's a really interesting take because my my next question was going going to be and 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 still is actually you know what what are the bigger roadblocks no pun intended to you know stop uh, autonomous vehicles becoming becoming widespread? Yeah, there's you know as far as like the technical capacities, I I don't necessarily understand the the fuel the full computational blocks going from say a level two to a level three that that exist. Um, you know, as an English professor and someone who's interested in language, um, you know, I've read up on some of the legislative blocks, some of the, the testing blocks, some of those different things. I honestly, Ian, some of the language around this is so complicated. And I know there's computational things that, that need to be sort of met. But when you have different companies saying, you know, things like partial autonomy or, you know, what does level two, level three um, mean to the average person. There's been huge efforts by different organizations, by different even, you know, AP style guides about how to sort of talk about this so that people understand what they can use this technology for and when, in what situations. And yet, just, just this past week, uh, there was a New York Times op-ed by, I've never said his name aloud, but, but Farhad Manju, who's very, very, been alone, one of the more popular tech writers. And and the driverless community, it was about him sort of using some of the technology for the first time and writing about it. And the driverless community, particularly online, was was sort of up in arms about how he misused different terminology, made it seem like it was full self-driving when it was only, in reality, a, a level two. And this is a very, this is one of the more well-known tech writers. And so I know a lot of people in the driverless car community who are not, not just tearing their hair over, tearing their hair out about the technology and different sort of use cases or corner cases as they call them when they're sort of difficult moments, but quite literally just getting, getting the community, the industry, mm -hmm. the different companies on the same page, linguistically getting consumers to understand what they have. Yeah. Because, because everyone's going to have to work together for this thing to work. Right. And, and just to, to cut in there, I mean, you're talking about how the, the deadlines for you know, autonomous vehicles keep, keep being, pushed back and back and back and if every time it seems to be being moved back by an increment of a year do you, do you think that's actually reasonable are we looking at decades rather than years i you know i almost i almost hope so you know i don't i don't view it necessarily as i think there's a way certainly if you're invested i, I understand from an investment standpoint um 
you would want these things to be approved to to sort of maybe move forward but you know i personally think it's really really quite frankly cool that i got to teach a class to 18 and 19 year olds on driverless cars before they existed that we were able to talk through the issues look at it from different uh, angles what are the environmental benefits of risk what are the safety benefits of risk what's the potential advantages to say the the disability community or the elderly or elderly populations to really tease out these issues before they existed. I thought that was awesome, that it, that, that it is taking longer and it's allowing more discourse to happen, as opposed to say something like a, like a Facebook or like a social media company that all of a sudden just existed one night and just started spreading all over the world. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, we're, we're sort of playing catch up. So, so I do from a cultural perspective, I like the slowness and like I am, I'm an English professor, so I like studying things and I'm inclined to say that, but, um, I don't view it as a bad thing at all. I, 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 you know, again, people would with some more money tied up and it might disagree with me, but I really cherish the, the opportunity to teach students about it and really hopefully make them more savvier citizens or even some I know who, who've sort of started carving out career paths in that direction. Yeah, and, and I read, you know, in your article, uh, well, in, in one of the articles, you sent me a, a handful that you've written on this topic. I understand you've grown frustrated yourself with books on on automated vehicles uh, and, and the things that other authors have written. Uh, you know, obviously, you've, you've, you've put your own neck out there and written a book yourself. What I want to know is, is what are people getting wrong when they're writing about AVs? And, and why is the reporting, not just, not just the, uh, the fiction or, or, or things like that, why is reporting as well on, on AVs insufficient or misleading? So I've seen you, you criticize that as well. Yeah, you're quite right to note that I'm about to stick my, my neck out there more, uh, more forthrightly in the coming months after being a, a slightly punchy participant in those, in those discussions. So that's, uh, I, I, I probably deserve a little bit of, of pushback in that arena. I think when I first... When I first started reading a lot of what was being written about driverless cars, there was um, just just a lot of a lot of over the top car writing, a lot of what I called cargasm, sort of the the, the the magic of of sort of being in a car and being on the open road. And listen, I love I, I drive quite a lot. Uh, I I enjoy reading books. I wrote in many of the pieces about road novels that I that I love. Um, I think. I think what is hard with a lot of driverless, well, with car writing period is that, and I'm speaking primarily as an American here, um, there is a real cultural sense of the car being somehow integral to American life and sort of individualism in the Western frontier and movement. And, um, and listen, I, I have those sort of those cosmological or sort of mythical ideas in me as well. And I think the more and more I started reading and started working with different organizations or talking to different groups, trying to understand mobility from more perspectives, from, you know, from again, the, the disability community, from again, elderly populations, from trying to understand how driverless cars aren't just a continuation of some, you know, you know, majestical, again, I'm speaking as an American here, but some majestical, you know, sort of, frontier pioneering life but but cars as objects that affect everyone in society and to be clear there's many people who do an incredible job um writing about this i taught so many you know writers and journalists and, and theorists in that class that just did an incredible job at expanding my worldview um i do think predominantly the there is some you know wider spread 
recording or writing that just sort of occasionally views it as, as okay, well, this is the next step in vehicles because vehicles are integral to um, American life, which and I, we don't have to transition right now, but Web3 is kind of like that too with crypto where it's like, well, we have Web2, Web1 and Web2, and now we'll have Web3. And it's just sort of a natural continuation of, of what we've done toward this frontier instead of asking, well, how's this, how's this actually going to affect people? We should have enough ability to study history, to, stu to study trends, to not just sort of blindly march forward towards whatever's next. Mm -hmm. And and just to you know, obviously you're, you're on this podcast to talk about the limitations of, of driverless cars, and we're also going to later discuss some of the uh, the challenging aspects of cryptocurrency. Do, do you generally consider yourself a cynic? Good question. I I would say I the word I keep coming back to. I've probably said it four times already. It's slow. Uh, I'm, I'm slow. So you man. Get, like, don't describe I'm yourself just, as slow. That doesn't usually. Come. Well, I guess maybe that could come across bad. No, no, I'm I know just, what you mean. I'm, Sorry, I'm, I'm just like. Uh, but... Yeah, I'm just like I just want to slow down and look at. I want to read. I want to to my to my detriment in, in certain ways. Um, I don't think of it as cynicism. I, I guess you could say it's it's skepticism. How about studious? We'll say I'm I'm studious. Okay, uh, let's go with that. And and so I don't view it as. As a cynic, again, I have talked to people. There are people, whether it's whether it's crypto, whether it's driverless cars, who make really, really great cases to me that I'm not. Um, I would like to think I'm very open-minded. I mean, I'm here on an investing podcast. There's plenty, quite frankly, of of sort of you know English professors with my sort of politics who would sort of scoff at doing something like this. I'm not that way at all. If I was really, really a, a skinnick or a skeptic, I would probably skeptic. I would probably scoff at the the notion of of engaging with with people but i'm i would just like to think i'm interdisciplinary that i'm more studious yes i think the more and more i study the more and more i really study a topic the more concerns arise so if that makes me a cynic then i guess that's that's fair but i would say it's well-earned cynicism i suppose is how i would frame it sure and last question on the topic of driverless cars You've obviously written this book, uh, the novel Test Drive. Can you can you quickly give us an overview of what it's about, what it explores? It explores, and I should probably have a better elevator pitch ready. This is my first uh, time talking about it in public. It's I've, I'm going to be doing some stuff when it comes out, but this is a good a good exercise for me. It talks about um, workers in the driverless car sector and trying to make the technology work. Um, trying to grapple with with social issues and people who are against the technology and trying to trying to have their own foothold in the world they have their own financial concerns they have concerns about the company um i really wanted to write about the driverless car sector and people in it you know when i first started writing it it was it was going to be about test drivers who were worried i had this idea for a while test drivers are going to be worried that the better they do at their job at test driving these vehicles their jobs are eventually going to be replaced but the more and more i actually talked with test drivers and and met different people in the sector and talked to them it became clear like well that's it's going to be a while before these things are licensed and the more and more i met with people and just sort of studied the sector which is very large in pittsburgh the more i just became um really, really fascinated by working in that sector, working with these technologies, trying to make them work. Um, this is a very bad pitch line for my novel. I would say it's, it's, uh, it's funny and it's a bit of a heist. Eventually some test drivers decide the technology is not gonna work and so they try to steal one of the driverless cars and sell it for parts. I guess that would be the, that would be the small <laughs> pitch 
um, the gotcha. more the, the, the sexier pitch that I should probably start saying. Well, all good, all good, um, and, and I'm sure you know we'll feature some some of your work at some point in the in the Wealth Tech Weekly newsletter as well. So it'll be interesting to to, to go over that again. Then um, I now want to discuss cryptocurrency. Of course, uh, I, I take a real interest in in all things decentralized finance. And and this podcast has, has featured conversations on crypto and NFTs, for instance. Uh, I read your article in the Baffler at the start of the year, and this article is called Everywhere in Blockchains. Uh, it's a really fascinating read. Uh, can you, as well, for those who haven't read it, um, and sorry for making your, you condense your work, and I, as I said, I'd encourage people to read it, could you quickly give an overview of, of Everywhere in Blockchains, the article? What were you writing about, and what, what message were you, were you trying to get, get across with that? I was just trying to demonstrate my crypto journey, I guess. I mean, over the past two years, I got really into it. I come not to bury people who are fascinated by it, obsessed with it. I was very certainly into it, studying it all the time. And basically, I just wrote about everything I've read for the past two years and and trying to frame myself. You know, I graduated from my university in 2008, right into the teeth of the of the financial crisis, the housing crisis. And, you know, that's, that's framed a lot of my, my life. It's framed a lot of my, my work, be it creatively or scholarly. And so I wanted to sort of start by saying, okay, it makes sense that, that something new comes out of that crisis. It makes sense that people, um, you know, were feeling disillusioned with traditional finance, that they wanted something different, um, something more accessible, something, you know, more regulated well which is not necessarily what crypto is but um and starting from a place if it makes sense that something new has come out of that moment here is this new thing cryptocurrency uh what what is it what is it what are its qualities what are its positives its negatives and i think one of the reasons i would like to think one of the reasons that i've gotten such a big response quite frankly one of the, I mean, it's why I'm on this, this podcast right now. And there's many other, I've gotten a bigger response to it than probably anything I've ever written is just because I think people can, can sort of access a lot of different points of my personal arc in that piece. Um, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant or whatever, you know, I'm like not, I don't claim to be the greatest writer or essay writer in the world or professor or anything, but I do think a lot of people come into the crypto world or they write about crypto from a very particular stance and they're advancing a certain argument or a certain skepticism or whatever it is. And I do think that one thing I'm proud of in that piece is that I think there's a lot of different ways for people to relate to me. They relate to me getting into it. They relate with my, with my sort of 2008 housing crisis. Oh my gosh, I'm young. What is happening to this economy I'm entering in? Um, they relate to me on that level. They relate to when I start getting really into cryptocurrency. They relate to me when I'm sort of becoming more skeptical about it and reading stuff where I'm like, boy, I don't really trust a lot of these people or some of the people that are being reported on in these books really don't seem like people that I want sort of forming the new financial world I'm a participant in. So, so the piece is, is my sort of personal crypto journey, which I hadn't seen a ton of. I mean, I think more, more of the writing, there's been terrific writing from all different directions. Um, but I really wanted to sort of just demonstrate my arc, not as an expert, but again, somebody who is just studious and is trying to figure out what I think about a complex topic, which again, sort of winds up at a place of, of more, I would like to think, well-earned 
skepticism. Um, but it's been really interesting how many different people have reached out. I mean, I've had different little leftist magazines I'm now going to write for. I'm talking to a financial podcast right now. There are lots of, there's a broader coalition of skepticism about it than I would have thought um, initially. Yeah. And, and the things you touch upon are exactly why I, I reached out to you because crypto and, and you know, I've talked about this on the podcast too. It's often discussed as an opportunity to rewrite a, a, a system that's broken for a lot of people, right? Um, and decentralized finance, NFTs, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, it seems to offer a lot of people hope and an idea to find, you know, a way to find, uh, you know, a way out of a difficult financial situation. Uh, and one thing I would say to back that up is we see huge growth rates for crypto in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in the West, uh, in America in particular, you know, a, a huge amount of the, the young millennial millionaires are millionaires because of crypto. It's um, it's quite clearly being viewed by many people as a chance to start afresh, create something new and create something better. And I think I think you're right to challenge that notion because, you know, for some people, maybe it does offer a fresh start. For some people, maybe it does offer them hope. There are other people that I'm sure will lose and lose hard as a result of the the rise of NFTs and crypto. So, Patrick, I mean, I'm sure we have a good idea already, but what what are your views on crypto as a as a liberating force? I I think what makes me most uncomfortable when you say, you know, when we talk about a liberating force is a lot. I was just texting with a banker two nights ago who had read my piece and was, was reaching out. And one of the really frustrating things to me right now is kind of the, I don't know, I don't know why I'm being careful about what I say, that sort of the laundering of sort of woke politics or sort of what would be called sort of more left woke politics through um, cryptocurrency outlets like it just as an example just articles at very mainstream very cnbc outlets and just sort of quotes from people or just sort of mentions of well nfts are going to uplift the black community or um you know women there was a tweet that in the initial or a piece that i initially wrote about in my article about somebody saying that nfts would you know do more for women artists than anything since the printing press and just these sort of things that get said and it's and I, I look at it and it's like these issues are very very difficult and they've been around a long time and so to say that nfts or, or crypto is suddenly going to you know fix the issues of you know marginalized group a b or c to me like honestly it's a little disrespectful to, to the activists to the, to the theorists to the thinkers who've been doing that work for generations, for decades, and, and you know, are making sort of incremental gains uh, day by day, week by week, to think that some technology is going to come in and sort of magically solve these sort of uh, social issues. And I know people, as I know you do too, and you've, you've written about them and interviewed them, I've seen, I've seen your work, who, who do make compelling cases. I, I know people who sort of work at a, an Ethereum killer type you know, project and, and speak quite passionately about crypto's ability to sort of do these, 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 cure some of these social ails. I just, I see the way it gets written about as this kind of, um, not so much, a, I mean, it is related to economics or, or sort of personal finance, but is this kind of uh, uplifting thing for different marginalized communities. And 
And I just, I, I think about the people I know who actually do that work, that incredibly difficult work. They're not interested in crypto. They're interested in voting rights. They're interested in protections. They're interested in, you know, all sorts of daily sort of issues plaguing marginalized communities that, yeah, you can squint and maybe see how crypto, you know, affects or helps some of them, but just as easily, like you, you wisely mentioned, Ian, I mean, it's, there's many more stories right now, whether it's legalized gambling here in the States or, or crypto that say, look how so-and-so turned $1 into, you know, 300,000 or th those are, those stories gain more virality than some of the losses, um, yeah, which is kind I, of frightening. Yeah. I, I find it really challenging writing about this kind of stuff sometimes because I, I do think new platforms offer new opportunities. I do think with the right effort in the right direction, then perhaps elements of DeFi could be used to lift people up. I also think that if I were a snake oil salesman operating this area, I would be saying the exact same thing. So, you know, you look at the uh, the incident with, with OneCoin, which obviously the uh, the Missing Crypto Queen um, podcast focuses on. Huge, huge talk there about putting people on a level financial footing, giving people the kind of route to self-actualization and empowerment. I think these messages are powerful, but they're also in the wrong hands, quite dangerous. And, uh, you know, something else just to just to change completely, because I realize we haven't got much time left, Patrick. I know you have some views on Web3 as well. I mean, Web3 itself is a somewhat nebulous concept. But, you know, what's your take? Is Web3 the future? Uh, are there any misgivings you have about it? Is there anything that's misunderstood about it? Web3, you know, I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about driverless cars as sort of this... Uh, you know, in some ways, it's it's very simple marketing. Just stick a new uh, stick a new number on it, and it's the logical procedure. It's now iPhone 12, iPhone 13, 14. Like it, it seems like a logical progression. Um, one of the things that you know, when we talk about Web three, we have to sort of think about what Web one and Web two are. And one of the really interesting things to me, Ian, about crypto is like how a lot of the people who are really into crypto and really online are sort of it's hard for me to articulate. They almost operate in this sort of ahistorical way. I, I write about, you know, when I first, when you when I answer your first question here about what's my interest in crypto, I'm talking about my personal history. I'm talking about the 2008 financial crisis. I'm talking about coming out of a moment where what is new? I would like to see something new. In many ways, I'm a total mark for what crypto should be. You know, I'm, I'm born in that moment as an adult. Um, and yet, one of the things I talk about in the piece is a lot of the people creating this stuff, I couldn't find any mention of the housing crisis in that Laura Shin book, The Cryptopians, I wrote about. Like, they're not driven by the same historical factors that I am. And I just read a book called Once a Bitcoin Miner by Ethan Liu, which is an interesting, weird, I'll say it's a very honest book. And he talks about how, he has a line in there about how when he got, really got into Bitcoin mining and really doing it, he became like a person without a history. He became a person, you know, there was no even before, you know, crypto that whatever happened to him before didn't matter. And I kind of feel like for a lot of crypto people, that's a very accurate statement. Like crypto is what's new. It's next. They all they become so obsessed with it that they sort of become ahistorical, you know, figures in society. They, they just want what's next. Whereas I see somebody who's being ahistorical, who isn't fully interrogating the problem, successes, errors, oversights of web one, web two, as somebody, if you're, if you're being, if you're a person without a history, you're a person without society, without peers, without insight, without reflection. Um, and so for me, it's, it's less about web three. And it's like, I almost want to talk more about web one and web two and what's, what's still going wrong, what could be different, what, um, 
instead of just logically assuming that there should be a next version of it. I find myself reading more and reading this, going back to this book by Claire L. Evans about the history of women in the internet. And I almost find myself now going backwards more than forwards now. And that's my own personal sort of journey I'm now on, but um, I don't know. I, I, I view a lot of people who talk about web three. I just, I literally just saw a somewhat, I'll just say deranged. That's probably too harsh, but a tweet this morning that was sort of like first the Renaissance did this to art and then the American revolution did this to politics. And now crypto is going to do this to both. And I'm like, what the hell? The Renaissance <laughs> and the American revolution. And I'm like, these are such different historical moments and countries. That and, is the beauty of Twitter, Patrick. <laughs> and this is not somebody with like 10 followers. This is somebody with like a bajillion followers who gets a million retweets and likes. And it just... The yoking together of all these historical moments where Web3 is like just sort of the, the cherry on the on this sort of techno optimist Sunday and be, that, that's following the Renaissance and the American Revolution that I, I don't know. I almost have it's not that I don't have criticisms or thoughts about Web3. I almost more am like viewing it as this thing that's stacked upon Web1 and Web2 that that. I now find myself wanting to understand, go back and, you know, obviously I used web one and web two, but understand more about them instead of just crowning this little cherry uh, on top and yoking together all these disparate historical moments that people do as this, as if it's like, well, this is just natural and just first there was the Renaissance, then the American revolution. Now crypto. <laughs> oh, it's good for the retweets though. It's good for the retweets. I guess. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Patrick, I, I operate in an industry which, doesn't always appear to use technology as quickly as it should do, sometimes for good reasons as well, regulation, and you've got to be very careful what you do with technology when you're looking after a lot of money. At the same time, my my work is, you know, I wouldn't say I was entirely optimistic about all things tech, but I am broadly a tech optimist. You know, I, I talk about wealth, wealth tech and I write about it because I think the opportunities are huge and I think the way we can rewrite things and redo things in, in the financial services and beyond is is exciting. But at the same time, conversations like this, I think, are so important because we can't just blithely accept that everything's going to be great, everything's going to work out, and you know we all, we all go straight into the future having a great time. So, Patrick, thank you again for joining us. Really, really enlightening conversation. And if anyone was wondering why we had an English professor on the show, I think that would have become very obvious over the over the course of this conversation. So, thanks again, Patrick, for joining me. Well, thanks so much. I, I think of a Martin Amos line that to deplore the present is the summit of idleness. Like if, if, that's why I'm interested in this stuff. I, I, I don't want to just deplore what is going on now. I want to study it. I don't just want to be idly sort of deploring things. And I would encourage, encourage other people to be studious too. Brilliant. Yeah. A studious rather than slow. And I'm glad we agreed on that. I think that was definitely the right word. Look, yeah. <laughs> thanks for helping me uh, workshop that one. <laughs> I can't take too much credit and I'm absolutely not going to get too cocky around an English professor. So anyway, Patrick, thank you again for joining me and thank you to everyone else for listening into The Wealth Tech Show. Mm -hmm.